This is Pod Academy. I'm Ishan Kader. In this podcast, we will be looking at the role of art in political change. We're joined by Dr. Louise Perbrick, lecturer in art history at the University of Brighton. I started by asking Louise about her art projects relating to political change. I've developed a number of different projects which use my skills as an art historian, that was my training, in a variety of political contexts. So I've worked with former Republican prisoners on an idea that they had at the time to create a museum at Longkesh Maze. And in fact, shortly, a few months' time, that space will be opened as a tourist zone, really not necessarily in the way they imagined it, but I was part of that kind of project of thinking about who controls history and how can the work of representation, collecting objects or even museum making can develop a political agenda really and including an agenda that is about equality rather than conflict so i've been involved in you know quite a few projects like that i'm involved in conflict resolution using art in northern ireland and recently more recently in brighton i um, put together an exhibition called rattling the cage which marked how people of brighton local people sometimes artists with artistic training but mostly just people who wanted to get stuck in how we created a series of objects that helped bring back Guantanamo Duteni and other guys back home. So most of my work, I suppose, is what would be called creative. I don't really like that term. I think everybody's creative in their own way, but it's to do with trying to use art for productive political change. Okay, and it speaks to the ability to, to ask who's controlling history and who controls the spaces of art as well. Definitely, and I think what's important really is that recognition of lack of access to people's own stories and inability to represent themselves, really. And I think partly that's where power struggles actually occur. I mean, representation is quite an interesting word because representation is one that we would use formally in democracies. Actually, we'd say that we have a representative democracy. And in fact, we don't have anything close to the ability of people to represent themselves. And actually, if they've got an idea, a good idea, to be able to have put that into effect and really, that's what kind of a real politics would be like. If you want to see change, you have the means of making that happen. And normally, you know, under normal circumstances, under normal liberal democracies, we have no power whatsoever to produce real change, which is partly why I think in a cultural sphere, if we can produce a space where people can create change, make change, or at least, at the very least, be heard. And, um, and then that, I think, is actually quite an important thing to do. Maybe, you know, it's not necessarily a revolution in the sense, but it's actually a way of producing a, a greater equality around a politics of representation that includes being heard. And that might mean telling your own story or telling your own history, or it might mean producing a work of art that actually represents an idea that you have or a problem that you see needs addressing. So your most recent project is the remaking of Picasso's Guernica. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and I would say first of all it's not just my project. All of my projects are always projects with other people and always I've learned an awful lot um, myself and so there's almost nothing I've ever done on my own ever in this sphere. I mean I write when I write and that's an individual pursuit. But So first of all it's a project that I help put together with artists and activists, firstly at the University of Brighton, but in Brighton we're quite an unusual place in the sense that we are quite embedded in our community. So it involved three or four artists who uh, who work as both teach and produce work in Brighton, and also representatives of groups that range from Brighton anti-fascists to supporters of Gatwick detainees um, and visitors. It's the Gatwick Visitors Group, Amnesty International, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, 
and we got together to develop a project. We didn't really know where it was going, first of all, but just to see if we could make a piece of work that ref- that used Picasso's Gerke to reflect on current issues. And so in 2012, there had just been a very big and vibrant community response to an EDL march. And out of that, a number of us wanted to produce something kind of permanent and engage in permanent community work following a kind of big demonstration that was thinking about what it means to be both an anti-fascist in a time of permanent war. And so Picasso's Denica is really important, which I don't know people, I'm sure they know the image. It's probably the most famous, one of the most famous 20th century paintings in the world. But it's an image of the aerial bombardment of a small Basque village at the opening of the Spanish Civil War. And I think it speaks to both an anti-fascist politics and a politics that is opposed to aerial bombardment as a matter of, a, of human rights and ways. If you're going to bomb people from above, you don't know who you're bombing and you don't know who they are. So they're almost always going to be killing people who are not in uniform. And so there was a kind of gathering of anti-war activists and anti-fascist activists around the making of the banner. We just talked really about how we should do it, what we should do and how we might collectively produce one piece of work. And so what we decided upon was the making of the individual shapes by people and coming together about what those shapes should look like. Should they be contemporary? Should we adapt Picasso's Guernica? Should we keep the, the very famous shapes and forms intact? At the same time as discussing those shapes, just the act of a group, for example, there's somebody from, I mentioned their name, Migrant English Project. So a representative said that she wanted to take on there's a very powerful image of a woman. It's a peasant woman running along the bottom of the image. And she said she wanted to take that picture because it seemed to her to be an image of strength. And she wanted to reflect on the kind of resilience of people who migrate for whatever reasons, maybe because they are completely impoverished, maybe to escape war. And so different people took on those shapes and those shapes had political significance for them and the group that they represented. And I think that was quite interesting. I mean, for example, the shape I made and making, still making, is the bull's head. And I did so on behalf of Bright and Anti-Fascist, a group that I work really closely with. And what's interesting about that head is it has a kind of image of resistance. It's a very tough image. It's an image of Spain. I work with an awful lot of uh, animal rights activists, so there's a kind of important in a way to take an animal form as an image of strength and almost humanity, I suppose, as well. But actually, my decisions to make that in particular kind of material didn't work as I wanted to make it in a T-shirt material, which is very, very difficult to sew on. And I've ended up making it in material that is uh, usually used for, for corsetry, so a very feminine but very tough material. So the bull, which is rather masculine, in the way in which I've made it, has become something else. So people have transformed those shapes and given them a new politics as well as respecting their politics in the original image. Okay, so how did other project participants go about adapting the canvas? Well, it's really interesting is that one thing that's happened is that uh, the two people of Lighter Maud and an artist, Nicola, are working on the very, very important horse shape in, in the middle. And in the image, it's that part of the shape is made up of newsprint. And as people will know, Picasso was in Paris when, when Guernica was bombed and he read about it in the newsprint, so the kind of colour coding of greys representing part of that in terms of his making but the newsprint has been transformed into embroidery that represents small tiny small crosses so represents a loss of life and um, there's going to be a number of names embroidered as that echo the old newsprint 
the names of people who have been killed by drones. And it won't, it won't be anywhere near all of those people that were killed by drone attacks. And what's important about that is those names will be a range of Middle Eastern names and um, a range of names that represent really Muslim children in part. And so there's been a rethinking in the contemporary context of who are the victims of war. Um, and hopefully it's not to take the image out of context or not to forget the loss of life in Guernica and the loss of life in the Spanish Civil War. In fact, the figure I read, which I really hope, as I quote it, is accurate, it's, it's 300,000 people died, which is, that is a lot of people. And, 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 and so the Spanish Civil War is not a kind of side issue at all for us. We wanted to make the image speak to a series of very important and quite urgent concerns. For us. So yeah, you've touched upon this already, so it's actually much broader than just the anti-fascist struggle within Britain today, but no. much much more global in scope. Yes, it is. And, that, and what's interesting and important about that, and we've talked about this, what's good is every time we've met to decide upon fabrics or, you know, how should, how big should the image be and all the rest of it. So every time we've discussed the practicalities, we've also discussed uh, the reasons why we're doing this. And one of the important things around a sort of local anti-fascism is the reason why, for example, the EDL have been able to march in numbers and actually the reason why we've got the rise of very right-wing racist parties is the new situation of permanent war post 9-11, really. And there's been this exponential rise in Islamophobia. And that isn't, isn't just a kind of matter of individual hatred, although I think there are some people who have not learned how to get along with their neighbours in very simple terms, but also it's to do with a context where enemies, so-called enemies, have been demonised. And so it's not possible in some ways to separate the, a sort of a local anti-fascist struggle from a wider global struggle, of which aerial bombardment unfortunately is a part. And do you think that that's something unique to today's world, say, in comparison to the world of the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s? I mean, there are some similarities in terms of austerity, and Greece is a really good example of a, of a regime that has pushed through austerity measures and one of the direct results of that has been the rise of Golden Dawn and the Prime Minister in Greece, I think he's Prime Minister, not um, uh, not President, but the leader in Greece said, you are looking at the Weimar Republic. So he was really clear that if there is not more aid to Greece and if there is not a, um, an attempt to produce through economy some forms of social bonding, you will, you will be looking at the Weimar Republic. So, I mean, I think there are some similar conditions. I, I do think the other similarity is conspiracy conspiracy theories around a Muslim state and conspiracy theories around a Jewish state from the 1920s. So I think those bonkers, completely bonkers conspiracy theories are on the rise now as they were in the 1920s. So there are some similarities, but the world has changed and I think power relationships have changed such that the US is pretty much you know, running the show these days and, and I think that wasn't the case, obviously, in the 1920s in the same way. But li like the Weimar Republic, which produced a, a very intense and sometimes violent, ideologically divisive climate. Do you think yeah. that's something which is repeating itself in, in Britain today or in other places? In Britain, in Britain, hopefully not yet, but I think that there is, I mean, I think the levels of violence and street confrontation in Greece are very high. I mean, I think what's interesting, if there was a comparison between the Weimar Republic and Greece at the moment, is, is uh, Greece is asking for more money in order to get into more debt. And, and, um, and the Weimar Republic, they were saying, under various different pacts, 
which actually the US were, you know, kind of a key player in the US, but they're saying we cannot pay our debt. And so rather than arguing to get, Greece is arguing to get into more debt, and the Environment Republic is saying we won't, we won't be able to repay them. So there is a difference in terms of a financial, the financial catastrophe we're looking at, I think is probably greater than the 1920s. And I don't really think history repeats itself in that way, but I think we should be alert to, unless we are going to kind of repeat a whole series of mistakes so again make me alert to the kind of social condition that can cause extraordinary political division you know in terms of the broader role of art and culture in resistance yeah. to what extent can projects like the remaking of picasso's guernica creatively engage in struggle to kind of transform people's consciousness I think some of that is to do with participation. It's giving people the space to participate. And some of it is the space to talk and discuss, you know, for people to exchange ideas. And I think that that's a very sort of slow method of change, I suppose, but it is part of it. And it's also to give people an alternative idea. I mean, there is an alternative to drones, which is to bring them down and, and not to bomb people with planes. You know, there are alternatives, and I think people need to have a space to say that. And when you listen to the news and people saying, oh, you know, whatever, drones have taken off and have been responsible for this number of deaths, it makes people feel hopeless. But actually to, to say, you know, there are alternatives and to discuss them, even if we're a long way from putting those changes into play. I think that's the start. And do you think then the participatory community-based art project can actually have a lot more poignancy in, in changing those ideas rather than, say, normal rational political arguments? It's interesting about where the sphere of normal rational political argument takes place. It's so removed from people's lives, it's almost as, or it's completely pointless. I mean, if that debate takes place in New York and the UN, how we might get access to that is re relatively limited. But to begin a discussion at community level and to look at ways in which you can make a difference, you know, I think is really important. It's interesting, in the anti-Guantanamo campaigns, it was through writing letters to people in positions of power and embarrassing them so much that they felt that they could not continue unless they made some kind of political change. So what we felt was that there was, in that particular campaign, and I think in all campaigns, there were local actions that you could take that incrementally could shift political viewpoints. And then in a more, in a wider sense, it means also you could begin to create alternatives altogether, you know, without having to rely on politicians to make the right choices under pressure, which is what often campaigning is. You could actually maybe produce alternative ways of doing things altogether. The other role I think that participation in art projects have is to give people a chance to, to communicate with each other, which we don't have often. You know, we really don't have ways of uh, exchanging ideas unless it's via kind of media routes or unless it's via technology that we don't control wholly or events which we are not, not part of, might be invited to observe. So it's just also as a way of creating bonds between us, I think. And in terms of the canvas, once it's complete, will you be yeah. displaying it in a gallery? We've had lots of um, interest from galleries, and I think it probably will go up. It's destined for ex an exhibition of Art of the Spanish Civil War in 2014 in Pallant House in Chichester, a regional gallery. But in between that time, and as we make it, we want it to occupy all kinds of community and social spaces, and we have plans. The way in which it, uh, we've created it is that it could be carried on, on demonstrations, or it could be displayed on a wall so I don't think we're going to turn down any offers of spaces to display it or even try and find places ourselves so we've had an interest from art galleries that's not necessarily our sole purpose our purpose was the making of it and the showing and using of it as a, a tool I suppose the banner is a kind of a tool for further activism so it's great that it will go up in Pallant House and we're hoping it will travel also to the working class movement library 
in Salford. There's a blog there, so we're blogging on that to let people know how our project's going. So the whole project really is also, in some ways, resisting the control of public art and space as well. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's interesting, actually, the use of gallery spaces and museum spaces, because there's no space in our culture that's properly neutral. But what's interesting about them is that they're public spaces where usually people can just walk in. And so they're interesting public spaces because they're not always spaces where everybody feels comfortable. Um, gallery spaces can be used for community public art and for range, and we would be stupid not to use them for those those reasons. And the other thing I think is they provide a kind of legitimacy to projects like ours. So the fact that Plant House are interested in including the banner in an exhibition of the art of the Spanish Civil War makes our project valid, so it can validate, which is very important because it means then when somebody comes to help us sew on a shape at Jubilee Library, they will be contributing to something that is acknowledged as an art practice and is acknowledged as publicly significant. So I think that although I'm, I'm critical of uh, fine art practice because of its expense and its elitism, I'm also very happy to use those spaces and to appropriate those spaces for community or political projects. That was Dr Louise Perbrick. Thank you for listening. This is Pod Academy. Mm-hmm.